So we're, we're going through a series where we're looking at questions Jesus asked. And today we're in the Gospel of Matthew and we're looking at who do you say that I am? And basically the talk today is we're talking about Christology and where it actually meets with the actual whole doctrine of the church. And in fact, this scripture that we're going to read from is so packed full of the doctrine of Christ that it's probably one of the richest sources you'll get when you read it. It almost touches on every single facet of who Christ is and what his mission on earth was to do. And then it's the very first scripture verse we have where it mentions the church. And it's very interesting that as a, a passage of scripture that is packed full of Christ is the first time it mentions the church. The church only exists because of one person. There's no other reason this church... This is not a church without Christ. We are not Christians without Christ. As I heard someone say, if we take Christ out of Christians, we're just a bunch of Ians. And Ian can't save anybody. But is there any Ians here? Doesn't matter. So I'm going to read through... um, it's a, I'm, we're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 16 of Matthew. It's quite a long one. Uh, and, and I know that you've probably all had a lovely day yesterday and you're probably all a little bit tired. I just want to remind you that we're talking about Christ and it says that he, ni- he neither rests nor slumbers nor sleeps. So I expect the same of you because we're trying to be like Christ, aren't we? So no sleep. No, just kidding. If you fall asleep, you can fall asleep, Rick. It's fine. If you fall asleep, it's okay. I'll pray. I'll pray for you. I'll pray that you have dreams and visions that will so awaken your soul that you will never be able to do anything but pursue Christ with all you have. So it doesn't matter if you sleep or not, Christ has got you. So Rick doesn't sleep normally. It's okay. I can't backtrack now, can I? All right. So let's read it. Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah." So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O ye, or O you, of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? 
How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he returned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Big chunk of Scripture. That's... Yeah, you're all awake. That's good. Um, we're going to go through it verse by verse. No, nah, that's a joke. We're not doing that. Yeah, he's still with me. That's great. There's actually nine questions Jesus asks through this. There's only one we really want to focus on because there's only one that is directed particularly at the disciples and there's the one that actually the whole gospel of Matthew shifts on. It pivots on this very question. The answer to this question and the following verses actually determines the very next thing that Jesus decides to do. It is the critical part that Matthew... It's almost directly in the very middle of the Gospel of Matthew. It's like everything has been leading up to this point. Jesus asks this question, and depending on the response, will, be de- will determine what goes on from there. It is the pivotal point of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything's leading up to this question. Jesus is saying, I've been with you for a long time. And loads of people have seen me for ages. What, what do they say about me? But what do you say about me? It is a pivotal point of the Gospel of Matthew. And as a pivotal point of the Gospel of Matthew, it's going to focus on the pivotal point of all of history. Jesus. 
as the, as the key to what Matthew's leading up to and where, where he goes from here, he's going to talk what? He's going to talk about the Messiah. He's going to talk about the Christ. And he's going to talk about him over and over again. All the way through here, it's talking about Jesus. And this, this passage is such a robust doctrine of Christ. In here, we've got the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the work of Christ. It's got his death, resurrection, his glorification, and his return. All here in this one chapter. All of Matthew has led up to this point. This question It's a pivotal point in this whole gospel that Matthew's writing. And to give you some context of this, we've read a bit of it, but Herod's already killed John the Baptist. He's dead. The last prophet, the last prophet of the Old Testament, gone. All the prophets killed by the people. Jesus, as we heard, he's fed 4,000, he's fed 5,000. Jesus has walked on water. And it's interesting that between Jesus walking on water and here, that the, the, the gospel writer Matthew is showing us two clear pictures of what the disciples saw his deity as. If we go back and we read about when Jesus walked on water. We always think that's amazing. He walked on water. Oh, that would have been awesome to see. And then we go, and then Peter got to walk on water. That would have been, I would have liked to walk on water. That would have been pretty cool. But do you know that that wasn't even the real crux of what Matthew's trying to get through about Jesus and Peter walking on the water? Do you know what happened as soon as Jesus got back into the boat? The storm's raging. Peter sees the waves And he gets scared, and he starts to sink. What does Jesus do? Saves him. What else would he do? Gets back on the boat. The storm's raging. The disciples are scared. They think this is it. And the storm stops. What they thought they were afraid of ceases. And what do they do? What is their response? It says in Luke, it says, that they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now these are God-fearing Jews. They know the first commandment. Who, the first commandment says you can't worship any other gods. You can't. And they worshipped him. This is the first time that the disciples... Now, we have other stories where others recognize that he was a Christ. This is a, the, the walking on the water was the first time the disciples recognized the deity of Christ. It was the first time they said, I am worshiping you as a God. And then we come through a few more chapters and we get to this point here. But Jesus has never challenged them on it. Who do you think I am? Until this moment right now, in this point. And before Jesus gets to this question, we have this interesting little bit at the first part of chapter 16 where he has this confrontation once again with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he says to his disciples, you've got to be careful what they're saying. 
because they're promising you things they can't give you. They're telling you different laws and rules and regulations you need to keep to hedge you about so that you won't break the law. They're trying to promise you that you'll be free from the law by obeying their traditions. Jesus is saying, be careful what they're saying. They're promising you something that they can never deliver. Freedom from the law. And it's a critical part because all the way through the New Testament, we have this thread of beware that you are not blown away around by winds of, the do- of, of men's doctrine. We have this thread through it. And in Colossians, Peter, uh, sorry, Paul spends a lot of time going over this whole point. Don't listen to the traditions of men. It's an important point. And Jesus makes it here before he goes on to tell them or ask them the question, that pivotal question. He's saying, please, please don't go to the law. And, and the, the law of the Pharisees wasn't the law. It's not the, the Mosaic covenant that they're trying to teach and preach there. It's their traditions. It's their stuff that they're covering or putting around the law in their hope that they will never break it. But it actually entraps them more. Jesus says, don't get entrapped by the teachers. Why? Because freedom is not found in law. And it's interesting because Jesus and his disciples are hounded by the Pharisees, and so what does he do? He goes to a place where he knows the Pharisees wouldn't follow him. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was not a Jewish town. A good Pharisee or Sadducees would probably never be found there at all if they could help it. See, this was a town that had a long history of worshipping Baal, of worshipping the Greek god Pan, and more recently, of worshipping Caesar himself. And in fact, Herod the Great's son, Philip, changed the name to Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar Augustus and of himself. It was a Greco-Roman town. There were shrines everywhere, temples. It was not a place for a Jewish person to be found. So how do you shake the tail of some religious fanatics? You go to Caesarea Philippi. So here Jesus is going to Caesarea Philippi, And now it's just him and his disciples. There's no crowds about now. Just you and me, guys. Just you and me. And Jesus is great. He starts up, he's he's a very compassionate guy. You get it from these questions. He starts with a warm-up question. (laughs) He starts up with a nice little one. He goes, so who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man I, is Jesus' most favoured title for himself. Now, we, we often say Son of God. You know, Jesus only ever referred to himself Son of God twice, and that's only ever found in John's Gospel. Son of God is not something that he, he gave as his own title. That was something someone else always said of him, except for twice in John. Son of Man was his favourite one. And why is that? Well, Jesus' deity is not in question. Often we question his humanity. 
Often we say he's God. We can't be like Jesus. He's God. But Jesus is always identifying himself with man. Do you know, I am the son of man. I am fully man. It's Philippians 2.7, that lovely scripture verse says, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Son of man was his favorite title for himself. Why? He identifies fully with man. He identifies fully with man. And he didn't want his disciples ever to forget that. Even when they come to the point of recognizing his deity, don't forget that I am fully man. And the title, Son of Man, it's it's summed up in a lovely uh, phrase like this. It says, Jesus, when he says, I am the Son of Man, he's saying, I am the true example of humanity. He is saying, if you want to see what humanity should look like, Son of Man, that's what he's saying, Son of Man. So who do the people say I am? Well, the people respond pretty similar to what people would say today. It's not too dissimilar. These, these are more religious people than perhaps today, but they say he's a prophet. Maybe one of the modern prophets like John, or maybe one of the great prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet, maybe one of the minor ones. But for sure, he's got something special about him. Now today you'd probably get people saying, well you do, you hear people saying, who do you say Jesus was? Well, if you ask Alexa, she'll say he's a fictional character, so don't do that. <laughs> don't get your information from Alexa. If you ask a lot of people, they'll say he was a good man, great teacher, fine moral example. I mean, even the Muslims say he was a prophet. There's no problem with saying the same thing these guys said. Most of society would. But those are people that don't really know him. These are people who don't know Jesus. They haven't spent three years or more trudging from the bottom of um, Israel to the top. At the moment, they're almost the furthest they've ever been from Jerusalem. And it's not long after this point that they turn around and the journey back to Jerusalem starts. This is a pivotal point in Scripture. So the disciples, they answer, well, it's easy to answer that one. Who do other people say I am? He's given them the warm-up. He goes in for the kill now. (laughs) Those people didn't know me. They said that. You who know me. Who do you say that I am? Peter's reply, I mean... This has to come from God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, what a statement. This is all. The point Jesus came was so that he could get them right there to acknowledging. Peter's the spokesman. No disciple disagrees with it. eh? They're fully on board with this. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That statement right there. And Jesus, his response, how does Jesus respond? You can almost see him, his his excitement of Christ. It's just like, yes, yes, Peter. Yes, buddy, you got it. You got it. There's so many times Jesus says, oh, 
you of little faith. So many times he's going, oh, how long will I be here? This moment here, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, yes, Peter. Yes, guys. Yes. Yes. You've got it. You've got the very, very reason I've come to spend this time with you. You've got it. At least to this point. And Peter's response. And it's not just like, you've got it, Peter. Jesus has been showing them for ages. When you want to find out the will of God, what do you do? You go to the Father. Jesus, when he wanted to make a decision, what did he do? He went to the Father. Peter, you've been to the Father. You've received the revelation. Now I can build my church. This this is a the most amazing passage of Scripture that you'll get on Christology and on the doctrine of the church at the very same time. It is so amazing that Christ and the Father revealing to man the very reason he taught his disciples and chose them. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. But I need to explain what Christ means and what the Son of God really means. You see, Christ, the word Christ just means anointed one or perhaps chosen one. And there were other Christ, other people who were called Christ. There were other people who were anointed ones. But they were a Christ. Peter doesn't call Jesus a Christ. He doesn't say, you are a Christ. He says, you are the Christ. See, the Jews were very familiar with the term Christ, and they were actually expecting. Their anticipation of the Christ turning up was very, very real at that time. When John the Baptist came preaching and teaching, do you know what one of the first things that the, the crowds were asking? Is this the Christ? Is this the anointed, the promised anointed one? And John goes, no, no, I'm not. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. And what's the first thing that the disciples do when, when they find Jesus? What does Andrew do when he runs to Peter? He goes, Peter, Peter, I've found the Christ. Amazing. And this, this Christ, the anointed one, it comes, I'll just read it from Hebrews 1.8. Hebrews explains why the Christ means God. Not just someone who's been anointed to do something, but God himself. Romans 1, and it's, it's referring back to Psalm 45, it says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, up, not, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And this is a key here. Therefore, God, so this, who is he talking to? He's talking about the ruler of the kingdom, God. Your God, so he's talking about two distinct identities of God, but the same God, has anointed you, anointed you, 
with the oil of gladness beyond, beyond your companions. Here we see God speaking to God. Two distinct identities, one God. Two persons, one God, right here. And at the end of it, what's it saying? The, that he has anointed you. Another way of putting that is he's saying he has Christed you. God was made Christ. In that moment, that scripture verse right there, saying you are the Christ and your kingdom will come. There was an anticipation that Christ, the Christ, was deity. He was equal to God. And Peter confirms this. He doesn't say you are a Christ. He doesn't say you're a anointed one. He doesn't say you're one of the prophets. He says you are the Christ. And he doesn't just stop there, just in case, because the Gospel of Matthew is written to the Jews. Primarily, it's trying to convince or to expound to the Jews. There's so much scripture verse in Matthew that's trying to expound to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And just to confirm it, Matthew, the gospel writer, is just saying, not only did he say the Christ, he says, son of the living God. The Jews used to always define those many gods, but they define the God that they serve by saying, he's the only God that doesn't need an image of him. No carved idols. He's a living God. Why should we carve something about him? And in fact, when Jesus is in um, the high priest's courtroom and they're trying to find an accusation for him, the high priest says, tell me by the living God, are you the son of God or not? Which Jesus replies, I am what you say I am. The living God. There is no doubt here that it's not a God, not a Christ. It's the Christ, the living God. You see, Son of God is not meaning that Jesus was created a bit less than God. This is important. Son of God means of the same substance, the same kind as God. And and, I mean, it's pretty easy to understand. My son is not less human because he's my son. He's of the same kind as me. He's as, as much a human as I am. Son of God, Jesus is as much God as God the Father. He is of the same substance, same kind. I love C.S. Lewis. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. The Son of God, this is it. And he talks about, because we have that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Okay? That's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, to beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And birds begets little birds. But when you make, you make something different. You make a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a statue. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man creates is not man. 
In this very statement here that Paul has just said to Jesus after the question, he is saying in no uncertain terms, you are God. That's the statement. You are God. There is no doubt at all in Peter or any of the disciples that this is God he's talking to right now. Everlasting from everlasting, God. And Jesus, so excited that Peter spoke up. So excited that the disciples have got this. Yes, Simon, you are a man. You're born of a man. That's what Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. But that's not who told you. Man didn't tell you about this. You are a man, a son of a man, but man did not reveal this to you. This was revealed to you by God, my Father, Father God. This is the most amazing part of Scripture where God the Father reveals to Peter and the disciples very truth about his son. And Jesus is going, yes, 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 Peter, I can now do what I came to do. The purpose I am here, I can now fulfill. You've got it. You've got it. Just this little glimpse, just this little glimpse, that's all it takes. Mustard seed. It's the smallest of things. Jesus, you've got it. You've got all of it, Peter. You've got it. I can build my church now. I can go and finish what I came to do. This highlight of of the gospel of Matthew in here, the the pivotal moment that's come to, and the very thing that Jesus talks to after he says, you've got it? What does he say? Now that you've got it, now that you've got it, I'm going to die. This truth that you have declared that I am God, that Jesus is God, That's what the church will stand upon. And if anyone can disprove that, then the church is of no good. It's not even a great club. You you guys are fantastic and I like you, but I wouldn't be here if Christ wasn't. It's the truth. If I stand not on Christ, then this this isn't even a very good club. I mean, look at you guys. You have to sit there and listen to me. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? If this isn't about Christ, this is a rubbish club. I'll build my church upon this very truth. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus then goes on to say, You're going, you, do you know what, guys? I've got to die. And not just, not just a nice, peaceful death. I've got to go back to Jerusalem. I've got to be beaten lied about, betrayed, and then hung on a cross to die alone. And he tells them this. Peter tries to stop him. He can't. Not even Satan can hold him back. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from doing his mission. What is the mission of Christ? What is the purpose for him coming as a man into this world? It was to die The only man born 
that he should die. His purpose was to die. And the very next thing that Jesus does after this, and we we haven't read it, but in, in chapter 17, we've got this amazing passage about Jesus going to the Mount of Transfiguration. Where he, not only has the glory of God been revealed to Peter, but Peter actually sees the very essence, the very glory of God bursting forth from out of Christ. He can't even contain it. His face shines like the sun. He's spoken of who he is and now he sees him. And Moses and Elijah is there. And do you know what they're talking about? Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to die. And do you know what he talks to Moses and Elijah about? He talks to them about him going to die. He's talking to Moses and Elijah about departing the earth and what he must do in Jerusalem, the suffering, the dying. And I'd never seen that before, but we get this amazing statement and the very first thing Jesus does is like, right, time to go to die now. You've got the church, you've got it now, you've understood who I am, you can, I've got something to build upon now. Now I go to finish the purpose I came for. Jesus has told his disciples that if you try to save yourself, you'll fail. There's only one saviour of man's soul, and that is Jesus. You have to die. And he says to them, you have to die if you want to live. And I just want to tell you, I'm just going to tell you this last thing, and then we're going to wrap it up. The Jews' understanding of Sheol or Hades, or hell, was a little bit different to perhaps how we've been portrayed it. And they would understand it as when you're going along in life and you have these moments, these moments that are like near-death experiences. You're coming along and you kind of like go down into the gates of Hades. But then you revive and you come back out and you continue life. Then you have another, you get really ill or sick or something and you, you kind of like go back down into the, the gates of Hades and then you come back out when you revive and keep going. And there'll be a, come a moment where you have these moments where the gates just close. Done. And you're dead. And you can't get back out. The gates of hell are shut on you. And this was their understanding of what it was to live life with that constant overhanging threat of death. Death would hold you captive. That's what the Jews believed. And when Jesus says to to Peter, the gates of hell should not prevail against it, this is what he's talking about. Jesus died. He went down into hell. He went down into Hades. 
He went down to the Sheol. The gates closed behind him. He was not concerned at all. In fact, he looked at the captives there and he proclaims, it is finished. Death is defeated. And the principalities and authorities of the realm of the demonic, they flee from him. And Jesus, as a conquering king, he takes the key. He turns around and he takes the captives with him. The gates of hell is standing there, but nothing can stop the conquering king now. He has the keys to death and hell. He comes up to the gate, as Samson did, and he blasts them away. There's nothing holding back the king of glory now. And as he goes through that gate, he takes with him the righteous captives in his robes. They're hanging on for dear life. Our saviour comes. He has defeated Death and how the key is in his hand. No longer can the gate hold us back. The church, the people of God, cannot be overcome. This is what the death of Christ did. It busted open the gates. It took the captives and it freed them. This is what Jesus is talking about in this one chapter. Death could not handle him. The gates of hell could not stop him. And you and I, his chosen ones, his called out ones, you are hidden in Christ. He is your head and you are his body. If he died, so have you. If he is raised, so are you. If he lives, so do you. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death comes at us us all. But death can conquer no more. If you are hidden in Christ, there is nothing death can hold you to anymore. We no longer fear death because Jesus holds a key. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of a song that I used to sing as a boy in church, and it goes like this. It's called Because He Lives. It says, God sent His Son, they called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to pardon, to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And then one day I'll cross the river, I'll fight, fight, I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I see the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. The whole church is built upon this rock, that Jesus is God, and because he lives, Death has been defeated and all fear is gone. Now, I could have made this really, really short and just read to you from Colossians because Paul, I cannot believe that the Apostle Paul was not reading this very same chapter when he wrote these words. I'm going to read it out. It's not as long as the other ones. And and listen to this. Colossians 2, 8 to 15. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the wholeness, sorry, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all ruler and all, is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, the legal demands that demanded our death, he set aside, he set aside and he nailed them to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And he finishes like this in Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I, I can't believe that it seems so amazing that the very scripture we read in Matthew is almost directly expounded upon by Paul right here in, in Colossians. Why is that? It is a pivotal moment upon which the church is built. Jesus came to die that I would not, destroyed death that I could not, gave life that I had not. Now I am hidden in Christ, woven into the very fabric of his body, being nourished by him and growing with the very life that is from God. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because he lives, I live forever. Who do you say I am? You are God, the death conqueror. You are God, the life giver. I just want to pray and I want to share communion with you guys now. We've got five minutes and I just want to say to you that we take communion because Jesus is God. He has conquered death and he is alive. And as we take this, remember that he has the gates to death and hell and he's busted out. And he's taken the captives with him. And there is nothing that the gates of hell can ever do against the church of God, against his people, against you people. Lord Jesus, we come here in this truth. We don't just believe it from the side saying that sounds good. Lord Jesus, we stand upon the rock of Christ, the Christ. We don't believe it only. We live it. Jesus is God.
And we pray right now as we take communion together, as we share this meal, as we remember once again that you had to die. We remember that you conquered death and that you take us with you. In Jesus' name, amen.